0: This podcast sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACEST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit, this year your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Want a fresh perspective on UI design? Look around. Not at other websites or desktop applications, but at other interactive media. To increase our own field of vision, Steven Anderson takes a macro view of interface design, focusing on alternative user interfaces and emphasizing patterns that can be leveraged in a business context. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast.
1: Cheers. First thing you need to know about me is I have a collector's personality. So if you have usability capture software or a sketchboard, or I have pre listing and ecosystem visualization, come see me afterwards. Uh, the second thing you need to know about me is I am passionate about interface design interfaces. And I've been, for about the last four or five years, really focused heavily on application interface design. I just love the complexity and the challenges that you get with you know, 80 unique page application systems. And I've been doing this as a consultant for about five or six years. Uh, then I moved into a big, large enterprise size company as a user experience director. And then more recently, I've joined a startup where I'm the uh, VP of Design, which if you know anything about startup, doesn't mean anything. Uh, but as far as my fanaticism about interfaces, I think it was about a year ago, I was talking with my wife and said, I really want these products. And I don't think I'm a gadget freak. I don't think I quite fit that persona. Uh, but I really want these products. And you know, not for the reasons you'd think. You know, you know saving the environment's nice, and the hard, hardware controls and the Wii are nice, but... You know, the way I explained it to my wife was, these all have really neat interfaces, and have them to do a really good job at my job. I should probably own these so I could see the experience that these have. <laughs> I've got the iPhone. I'm still working on the other two. So with that, I actually want to start with a question that I asked at a conference last month. And uh, the conference, the panel that they had was on iPhones, and how the iPhone has influenced the industry. And uh, so I was looking forward to the session, and I had one question that popped in my head thinking about this presentation as I was sitting in the uh, session. And so at the end, I got up and I asked the question, and it stumped the panel. And I didn't intend that, so I was like, OK, is it a bad question? Uh, and I got confirmation it was actually a good question. So uh, that made me feel better. But there was no answer. It actually made me feel b- better about this presentation, because I'm actually answering this question. But I wanted to open the same question to you guys, because I figure we have a, a panel here of about 200 in front of me. So here's the question I asked. How has the iPhone Interface influenced web or desktop application interface design. Do we have anyone who wants to share a way that the, app, the iPhone interface has influenced application design on the PC? Yes? two year old now a open All right. Very cool. All right, one more. even on the regular PC. That, that one actually makes me think of this new song site, Muxtape. if you've seen that. It looks like it was designed for the iPhone, but it actually doesn't work on the iPhone, because it's you know, flash and stuff. Uh, it works now? All right, great. So here's another example of that type of thing. And I'll be referencing a few examples throughout. But here's a new uh, a way to style radio buttons. Uh, if you had just two radio button options, it's a jQuery extension. And you can see, obviously, this is influenced by you know, the simple toggle switches in the iPhone. So these are the types of things I'm I'm going to reference throughout this presentation. And of course, the topic is new sources of inspiration for interface design. And I want to be clear, it's interface UI details, not necessarily interaction details or interaction patterns. So the question that I ask a lot of people and that I want you to think about is, where do you get your ideas for interface design? And if you're working on a project, I'm not talking about the features themselves. I'm not talking about the what. Uh, That's pretty clearly defined by research and the business stakeholders, things like that. But what I'm talking about is the how. So you know you've got to execute this feature, but you've got that moment where you decide, is this going to be a slider, is it going to be a drop down, is it going to be radio buttons, what is it going to be? So my question is, where do you get your ideas for interface designs? And kind of the background for this presentation, the reason I wanted to give it, is when I asked people this question or observed a lot of people, what I saw was a lot of default thinking. And uh, default thinking is uh, that, let me give you an example, or two examples. Say you're building an online booking tool for a major airline, that's your client, you're building the shopping process where they actually select flights. And what I found over and over again was you would look at other airline sites, right? That'd be the obvious place to look. And then I'd say, "Okay, well, where else might you look for inspiration? And rarely were people making a connection or looking beyond the competitors. And if you look at the major travel booking sites, uh, three lined up here. You see, even though they're different, they have different branding, it's all roughly the same. Or it's very similar when you compare it to something like WonderBar, which just came out, which is just a kind of a natural language search. And you can just start typing your travel information, and it'll figure it out as you go along. And if you make an error, it doesn't recognize, it actually communicates that. gives you feedback. So here, I type fly-DFW to MIA. April 10th, April 15th on AA. You know, it was giving me results instantaneously, and this was a, actually in, in this case, it was a better experience for me than going through and having to tab and select different radio buttons and drop downs, things like that. So um, I actually felt validated. I came across a Forrester report that actually said the same thing. I'm going to read this. Uh, in this report, they said, "Look beyond immediate industry rivals for innovative design ideas. Frankly, your competitors may be getting it wrong." But more importantly, your customers visit websites outside of your industry, which raises their expectations about the types of experiences the web can provide, expectations that remain intact when they come to your side. So I thought that was great validation. OK, maybe I have a, a topic here worth speaking about. There's another kind of default thinking. And this is more if you're in the development team or development side or if you have really limiting technology. And that is to look at your software and say, this is my toolbox. These are the pieces I have to play with. You know, I, when I go to choose it, I have, you know, 16 Lego pieces, and I've got to pick which one to use. And it's, it's, it doesn't have to be this way anymore. So, and I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. So really, this presentation is speaking out against default thinking and challenging you to think about other ways to execute the features and execute the applications you're building. So talking about new sources of inspiration, I might say, OK, I intend that the iPhone are up front, but what else? What am I talking about? Well, if we put in the center desktop software, web applications, and websites, the types of things I'm talking about looking at would be like your TiVo interface or your DVR, your Harmony remote, kiosk, some of the crazy experimental flash or Java applet visualization types, um, maybe the Nokia N800 series phone, or the iPhone, which I mentioned, or your GPS device, or the XO laptop with the Sugar interface, things like this, games really looking outside at other digital interfaces, uh, other interactions which are very similar to what we're doing with desktop apps and websites, uh, but not going beyond digital interfaces. And I mention that because there are about eight or nine really good presentations I've come across in the last year or so talking about this very topic, to get inspiration. And I wanted to include this because I think these are great slides to go look at. And by the way, my slides will be online after this, so all this information will be available. But uh, Dan Saffer did a great presentation at UX Week talking about getting inspiration from architecture, film, mechanical objects, uh, cinematic interactions. That was uh, another point of reference at IXDA a few months ago. Uh, Joshua Porter talks about social design. So there's all these other sources of inspiration. But when I looked at these, no one was really talking about other digital interfaces, which is really what I wanted to focus on. So new sources of inspiration for interface design. Uh, What sources, interfaces that are often overlooked or go unnoticed when we're designing our web apps or our desktop apps? And before I really get into the examples, uh, three quick comments. And yeah, I'm trying to get out of the yeah but comments that might be floating in your head. So first comment is this. With new technologies, almost anything is possible. Here now, 2008, it's an exciting time. We've got interesting hardware changes, obviously things like the iPhone, Microsoft Surface, uh, some of the crazy hologram stuff I've seen show up on YouTube. The XO laptop with an entirely new user interface, something that's really revolutionary when you contrast it with what we've been using for the last 20 years. Or things like uh, some of the Wii hacks and what people do there. Software is very interesting, especially the whole desktop and web convergence. We're going to see some really interesting things there. Adobe Air being an example of that. Things like cloud computing, where you can do many more powerful calculations. Platforms like Android to build mobile devices on. It's a very exciting time. I do, I do want to comment and throw this out. I think with the desktop and web convergence, we're going to see a lot of the uh, people who weren't able to, Wait, back up, I think desktop apps have largely been the domain of people who knew Java or C++, people who are hardcore coders. With the web, that barrier entry was lowered. So there were a lot of crazy experimentations, a lot of bad things. And there are also innovations that have been very exciting. I think with the convergence of the web and desktop, we're going to see the same thing over again. We're now with drawing tools, designers, visual designers, maybe designers who aren't trained, can draw desktop apps. So we'll see an explosion of chaos and different patterns. But we'll also see some really neat innovations and some neat uh, ideas come out of this period. So very exciting time. Second, I believe that natural behaviors are superior to learned behaviors. One of the things that I started thinking about with regards to this was the scroll bar. I mean, scroll bar is a basic thing, and on the current project I'm working on, I've been defending the value of the scroll bar versus some flash thing. Uh, So, scroll bars are really valuable, but it wasn't until I got the iPhone that I really started thinking actively about it. I'm like, okay, I mean, what's up with the scroll bar? We're pulling down to move a document up. So, if this is a physical, literal object, it's like some crazy pulley system that we're doing to to move things. you, you take the, a touch interface and you push something and you know, it goes in the direction you push. And this is very basic. Uh, you, know, you watch kids play with Hot Wheels. They put the finger on the Hot Wheel, they push it, and it goes in the direction they push. So a cursor is a learned behavior uh, versus some things that are more natural. So I would say natural behaviors are superior to learned behaviors, except when the learned behavior actually makes me feel and perform better. And a great example there would be the Quicksilver interface on the Mac, if you use that. Any Mac fans who have Quicksilver? Installed, yeah. Once you've installed that, usually people use Quicksilver, they're fanatic about it. It's, it's a command line interface to do routine things like open applications or cut and, cut and paste and things of that nature. And it actually makes you better at your computing tasks, more efficient, and people who use it are, are loyal. So to sum up, I won't read these three things again. I'll just uh, quote Willy Wonka here. Anything you want to do, do it. Want to change the world? There's nothing to it. So that's the, that's the environment we're living in right now. So let me go into the context and where this became really important. And by the way, a lot of these are ideas that I had on my desktop or things I had bookmarked or things I'd taken screenshots about. Uh, Leah earlier said, you know, keep a notebook or a screenshot collection. And so this is, a lot of this was digging through that. But if I just came up here and opened up and showed you everything I'd collected, it, I don't think it would be as valuable as if I put it in the context of the, the problems and the projects I was actually working on where I use some of these things. So one of the projects I'm going to talk about for for the bulk of the time, I'm going to call it Project Crazy Quilt. I had to give it a name since I'm going to be talking about it. This was not the actual project name. But I think Crazy Quilt describes it, one, because the project was crazy. Uh, Two, if you know anything about quilting, with a crazy quilt you actually take all the scraps and the fabrics and the things you have on hand already and you stitch them together to create something new. And that really is an apt description for the project. And by the way, this, as I read this, this is like the IA's dream. It's the really big, fuzzy, complex problem. So even though it was crazy, it was, it was a blast to start working on. So here, here, was the, here was the project. We had to integrate dozens of existing applications. Some were web-based, some were desktop-based. Each had wildly different user interfaces. There was some redundant functionality. And the individual applications we were integrating all had pretty much no information architecture to them, or very little. Uh, the, the outcome application, this monolithic thing we were building, had to support power users as well as newbies, had to support our small business uh, customers as well as enterprise companies, had to be infinitely customizable at the user and business levels, uh, deployed worldwide to broadband and dial-up clients, and so on. So you get a flavor for the project. Uh, pretty crazy. So I just want to focus on three UI problems we were trying to solve in this. And the first was how do we stitch together a dozen different applications? And if you snap that default thinking on the web or in a desktop app, you know, on the web it's pretty much tabs, right? That's the metaphor we think to pull things together. And it may be a different variation, looks like buttons or it's anchor at the top, but it's a tab metaphor on the web. And then desktops, it's your file menu, right? We did look at some sites that do a really good job of putting a lot of levels in a very compact space. So Vidler and Dig are two sites that do a great job of having three or four levels of information uh, in a very compact space without having nested tabs or other crazy things. And Amazon, if you look at the evolution of Amazon and the struggles they've had with the tabs and scalability over the years, we, were really, uh, we really admired what Amazon's done with the latest header area, with the drop-down menus and some of the things you hover over that reveal themselves. Great use of space. But I think the, uh, actually backing up, the problem with all of these was we couldn't eat into any more real estate. In fact, if we introduced any navigation in the system, it would conflict with navigation that was already there. And you can imagine navigation containing navigation, containing navigation, finally your work area is some 40 by 40 pixel area. Uh, Really a problem. I think it was at UX Week when I actually saw a demo of the Sugar interface for the $100 laptop that I really started thinking differently about how we could stitch these together. And if you've seen the screenshots of the Exo laptop, when I first saw it, I kind of said, oh, what is that? I mean, it's kind of ugly, it's you know, not colorful, it's got this frame. What's that frame thing around it? That seems so restrictive, and I wouldn't want that there all the time. Well, it wasn't until I watched a demonstration of it and actually saw that the frame is not there all the time. It's, it only shows up when you hover near the hotspots that it really started me thinking differently about the application our applications. Let me show you a quick video of that in action. So the EXO laptop is based on activities instead of applications and activities you do. And to switch to activities, you go to the edge and you actually can pick your activities at the bottom, or you can zoom in and out, something I'll come back to later at the top. But basically you can see how the frame is not there until you actually hover near some of the hot spots and then it appears, you can switch your context or switch your focus, and then you hover off of it and the frame goes away. So that idea that your navigation doesn't have to be there started us thinking in a different direction. And, uh, but we thought you know, maybe that's not so intuitive to do a way, maybe there's a way to actually show that there's something at the edge. So we looked at the idea of drawers you know, something where it's tucked away at the top and you can drop it down. Maybe a drawer is combined with something like Apple has or you can switch between applications. That was an idea. Uh, but then I think it was these four completely different applications or interfaces that that uh, started me thinking differently about a solution. And if you look at this, we got Quicksilver on the upper left, which you know, was invoked with the keystroke. We got the Apple iPhone on the upper right. We got the Wii channel interface here. And then we got... A kid's game called Club Penguin. Any of you have kids who play Club Penguin? Okay, Uh, It's a kid's game, but there's actually some neat things you can learn from it, as I'll show in a minute. There was a connection between all of these that I saw, and really intrigued me. it It was what I think Jennifer Tidwell would call the hub and spoke model, or pattern, where Quicksilver doesn't exist until you hit a keystroke, and that launches it. The iPhone, when you click into any of those applications, that menu that menu system of the 13 applications goes away. And now you're only focused on the application you selected. But at any point, you can push the home button. It'll return you to the top, and you can pick another application. With the Wii, in any game device, you have a game selection where you pick your game. Once you pick the game, you don't need that navigation of all the other games you have available. You're in that game. So it goes away. But at any point, you can push the button on your controller and return back to the menu options, or the channels in the case of the Wii. And on Club Penguin, there's, if you look in the lower left-hand corner, there's actually this map icon, and the map is what really will show you where you can go and all the places you can go. But the rest of the navigation, or the rest of the blue bar, is actually about activities and things you do, not about areas. So I made a statement last year when I was talking about adaptive interfaces. I said that when you're talking about applications, uh, they've tended to take on the L-bar shape that websites use. You know where we have you know, top-level navigation, and then we have a local navigation down the side, and I made the comment that this is absolutely the wrong pattern for applications. And the reason I believe this is with applications, really what should matter, it's, it should be very task-focused or activity-focused, so what should matter is what am I doing right now, and then what are the options to help me move forward, how can I go back one level, and then that kind of that hub, how can I return t- to the top to do a different task. So that's what I think is the actual, the better model than the L interface that we see in a lot of applications. So looking at Club Penguin, I actually want to deconstruct this one, because I found this really fascinating. And here I'm going to geek out on a, on a little model here. First off, uh, I like that the navigation was that one button, the map. And then everything here you saw in the blue, those were the activities, so chat things, uh, built-in chat things. So if you want to make your little penguin dance, or if you wanted to they had a lot of expressions that were automatically built in, you could select with a click. But I started looking at all the different screens as my uh, kids were playing this and going through the different areas. I was looking for patterns. What were all the different screens? So if you look at all these, these are actually the areas on this giant you know, uh, Arctic ice island thing that's, uh, that's Club Penguin. And you'll notice that there's all these areas. The one on the lower right hand, sometimes you'll come to an area that has buildings. You can actually go in the building. So even though it's like, if you think about it conceptually, it's in an area that you were in before. So mapping this out. I thought of it like this. Geographical places, and then building interiors, caves, etc. And then you look at the controls. You have the persistent controls that I've mentioned already. You also have news up at the top. You have a drawer that drops down with other options. So I kind of thought about it like this. And then occasionally you click things like the map or your profile. And those are pop-ups that pop up at the highest level. So I thought about it like this. And then... Back at some of those ge- lower geographical areas, you can actually play games. This is the draw of Club Penguins. All these games you can play where you earn points, so you can buy more stuff for your virtual Penguin avatar. And so here's a game where you actually you go into the pizza parlor, and the game is how many you know, pizzas can you make in a certain amount of time. Very 80s arcade-style games. But think about that conceptually as that lowest level. So that's Club Penguin. That's interesting and all, but what the heck does that have to do with my enterprise business class application? Well, thinking about our problem, I looked at it this way. We have various applications that we're stitching together, and some of those applications have application specific plugins and related tools. What we're trying to create is a persistent global controls that will work across some of those applications. We also have things that we want to persist, like profile information, global pop ups, navigation, news, things of that nature. And then there might also be, within those applications, very specific channels or things, flows you get involved with. So contextual help, context, specific task. So that was really how I thought of the application. That was kind of an eye opener for how to stitch this together. Obviously, I can't show the solution, but in all of these, I'm going to state the problem and some of the things we looked at for inspiration. The takeaway from this is look beyond the surface. So in this case, get past the fact that it's a kid's game, look beyond the surface, and look at the structure of how this game is actually pulled together. Okay. Second challenge with Project Crazy Quilt: How do we accommodate all levels of users and deep customizability? And this is one where we struggled with because it, it's kind of insane. And we pushed back several times, saying we really need to focus on one user. Do we need a monolithic application? And all this, all those types of business conversations you would expect to have. Uh, but it wasn't until I was sitting in front of either Photoshop or Keynote and on the Mac and working that I realized. Here's a solution, a possible solution that's been staring me in the face, and that is floating windows. The idea that yeah, I can pop up windows that give me more advanced controls, I keep them closed for basic newbie users. Uh, and this is something, that, especially if you've been designing a lot of web apps, the idea of pop window, up windows and windows that especially communicate with each other. We see this in some desktop apps, but it's not a common pattern, it's not something you see a lot. I think for us, Actually, let me make the comment. I think there is think outside the UI box. So I think there's this box we draw, with, you know, whether it's the browser or whether it's the desktop and however large it's maximized, there's this box that we mentally draw. And so the idea here was we don't have to be constrained that box. We don't have to put everything in drawers or slide out menus or drop downs or tuck things away. We just have pop-up windows that maybe you could align or do other things with. And I think the catalyst for this, one of the things that... Uh, Excited about this, looking at Air. If you look at Adobe Air, it's, it's all Windows that you can download and run on your desktop. And we were looking at the eBay uh, client. And you uh, look at eBay, and then you look up, you, know, you go to make controls to your, or changes to your profile, and it pops this up. And when you close this, it actually makes changes. These two windows are talking to each other. So it, was, it started us thinking about this path. And there's, along those lines, there's a great, great paper I would recommend, and it has a lot of good points I'm not going to cover here tomorrow. It's called learning from games, and it was a research project where I believe some graduate students went out and played, you know, 15 different games. And what they were looking for were patterns that they could then bring back and apply to desktop or web app development. And this is kind of a high-level summary of the patterns they found. The only one I want to comment here on here is deep customizability, and that is if you look at these games, especially something like World of Warcraft. Uh, which I'm going to show screenshots of in a minute, They're, the UIs are highly configurable, highly customizable. You can see people who have completely different configurations. And this is very different from what we've been doing with a lot of our desktop web apps, our default thinking. You know, we say things should stay in one place and be in that place, yet this has not been a problem in the gaming world, where people move things around all the time. I just got a chance in preparing for this project to actually watch some friends play World of Warcraft and They showed me, if you were starting off at the first level, what you would see. And then they jumped into their 70th level Magi or something and showed me all the windows and all the things they had added and all the scripts they had actually downloaded from a World of Warcraft community to customize the UI and the interface to make them better at certain routine things they do, make them more efficient. That is something huge that we could bring over to our business applications. So think outside the UI box. Third challenge, how do we accommodate, or third, yeah, UI challenge, how do we accommodate multiple workspaces? So here the idea was, you know, imagine since it's tax season, imagine you're, a, 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 you're H&R Block, and you're working on taxes for one client. Someone else walks through the door, so you've got to pause what you're doing, work on their work. And oh, by the way, you are working on three other clients, too. So the idea was, how can we have multiple workspaces where you could do the taxes for different clients and switch between them? And one obvious answer from the web world would be to think tab navigation, like Firefox, right? You just have different tabs. In our situation, though, it didn't scale. That wasn't the right solution. It would take up too much information. Uh, in a desktop world, you might think of minimizing things to the taskbar, you know, minimizing them. Well, again, we had stuff going on at the edges, and that really didn't work in our case. So here was a challenging one. How do we deal with workspaces in addition to all these other things we've been talking about? I want to show you a couple things that we looked at that kind of made us think about possible solutions differently. The uh, first is a portfolio of of a a Flash designer. And I think someone forwarded this to me because of the floating windows that he was using. But it was the scroll bar and the areas that that actually caught my attention. It's kind of hard to see because of the the light. But what he's doing on here is whatever the size of your browser is, that is one workspace for one portfolio project. And you can click down the side, different navigation, or this is what caught my attention. As you're scrolling here, the scroll is almost locked to different areas, so you scroll. Instead of a a smooth scroll, it locks to different areas down the page, so there are 12 or 13 different projects he wants to highlight, so as you scroll, you're switching between projects. Uh, All these links will be online. I definitely encourage you to go play with this so you can see what I mean, but it was a great way to think about work areas or workspaces. Here's the other one that really caught my attention. It was from the iPhone. And uh, how many of you have an iPhone, by the way? Just like, yeah, ah, pretty good number. Uh, for those of you who don't, if you, uh, you, know, you go to open uh, the browser window, obviously on that limited real estate, you couldn't have multiple windows open, or tabs, or anything like that. So the way they've dealt with this is very simply, you have an icon in the lower right-hand corner that shows you how many windows you have open. So in this case, you have four windows. And that's the only button you need that shows you how many windows. So you, if you want to switch between browser windows that you have open, you push that button. And the interface actually zooms out a bit. And then you can actually slide across and pick the next browser window that you want to zoom back into. So this was a great way, without using very much real estate space at all, to actually allow workspace switching. And in our case, that might have been a good solution, because you weren't switching frequently, like you might do in browser tab, tab browsers in Firefox. It was switching maybe every 30 minutes or 15 minutes, something like that. So an extra few clicks to gain you a lot of real estate was actually a worthwhile trade off. OK, so, so that's one project uh, that I worked on. Here's, here's another one that, I, that I'm working on currently. I'm at a search engine company right now. And we're not, we're not actually in the search engine business. We're more about the display of search results. So we get our data from Yahoo and Google and MSN, folks like that. But we actually are focused on, are there better ways to display search results? So if you tr- search for a chicken recipe, you might see a, re- a view that looks like that on the right. Or if you search for a tech gadget, you might see you know, something different. Or weather would look very different. So really focused on how you experience data, or to tie into our theme your experience information. Uh, what, what this has done, thinking about this, is, has caused me to really, as I, as I approach some sites that I would have overlooked in the past, now that I'm thinking about data and how it's presented, I'm seeing things differently, and picking up on things I wouldn't have noticed. So here's a flash site. And uh, kind of crazy, see all these bars. You scroll and you're hovering near the edge, and it scrolls over. Uh, I did figure out, after about 30 seconds, you actually click on the bar, it opens up, and you can see this guy's artwork. It's uh, his, uh, his art site. He's a painter. And I think a year ago, I would have looked at this and said, "Oh, that's cool. or it's interesting or it's experimental," and not thought anything more of it. But since I was thinking about search, I looked at this and I'm like, "Wow, this is incredible." And here's why I think it's incredible. If you look at it in terms of nodes of information, there are actually five nodes of information. You've got top-level categories. Within those categories, you've got subcategories at the bottom. Uh, The bars themselves communicate two pieces of information. The color communicates something, or could. And the height of the bar could communicate something. And then when you click on one of those bars and open up, there's a fifth node. And usually when we talk about representing data, two or three nodes is pretty common. But to have five nodes of information, that blew me away. I don't want to show you a search example because I don't think that would be relevant to a lot of you guys. But I wanted to show you a different example. I think that would be, and that is a business intelligence tool. And I had another client in mind that I worked with a few years ago. Uh, They did a lot of consumer retail products, and they would have sales tools to track sales of their products in all the regions and within those regions and cities. So now imagine logging into your executive dashboard and seeing something like this, where you know the height of the bar, the total height, indicates how much expected sales the color coding, and it shows the actuals for that quarter. Um, You can see where people, the sales are less just because of the region. You can see where people are not performing well, or maybe they're in the yellow. You can actually open that up and start to see more details and how they trended. So this would be a great way to do an executive dashboard. And the idea came from an experimental flash site. All right, so these are the types of things I'm talking about. The takeaway from here would be what I said earlier, look beyond the surface. In this case, look beyond the surface at the structure, or the uh, the skeleton, I'm sorry, the wireframe, and say, how could this be applied to my context? (laughs) Picking on Microsoft, but they've done a great job with the latest version of Office. But it's a good image to throw in the background. So here's another persistent problem across everything. It doesn't have to be specific. It's how do we reduce the complexity in our applications? And again, I'm going to go back to that model I showed earlier. With applications, I really think it should be focused. Most of the real estate should be focused on the activity, the action you're doing at that moment, where you can move forward, being able to go back one space, and then that button to return to home. And two things that have that really forced me or corralled me to think about this when I have more real estate to play with, are these principles. Design with less space, and kind of a complementary thought to that, thinking conversations. And these are things I'm thinking about all the time with application interface design. And I want to show you some examples of that, really good examples. The first is from uh, Songza. And uh, Songza is a music search engine from the guys up in, I believe, Chicago, Humanized. And they're doing some really neat things with UI details. And in this case, they've actually broken down to the the specific activities or the specific actions you would do when you were looking or listening to a song. So when you first type the interface, there's really nothing there but the song titles. If you notice, what's missing are the play options and the add this to my favorites and the forward to a friend and all this other stuff. And they said, look, at this moment, right after you type search, the only thing that's important is selecting the song you want. So let's just focus on that, isolate that specific piece. So you go over and you click on a song. And then you get this uh, radial menu that pops up. And this is, uh, I've seen radial menus used differently. This one actually makes a lot of sense, I think, just because there's four options. And I don't know that they have keyboard accessibility at this point, but I could imagine it wouldn't be that difficult to make this, you know, add some keyboard controls here where you could use your uh, cursor. So you, you then select play. And since play is kind of the end point, it would play the song, that, that's pretty much that action. But if you select something like share, then it's going to take you that next little micro moment. You know, okay, how do you want to share it? Do you want a link to Song? Do you want to Twitter this? Do you want to embed it on my site? Or do you want to email it to a friend? And same thing if you go to rate, then it says, okay, is this good or bad? And so it's really breaking down something they could have exposed up front and shown you all of it and breaking it into those micro moments, if you will. Here's another example. This is an online photo editing tool called Picnic. And uh, you'll notice there's the tab navigation across the top. But when you actually click on something like exposure, those tabs go away, and they're replaced with all the exposure options. And again, in a lot of traditional web apps, you know, the tabs would persist because you know, they're global, and they're important, and we have to keep those there. Well, in this case, they're actually replaced because they're thinking, you clicked on exposure. Either you're going to do something with exposure, or you're going to cancel out. So we don't need to show you those other tab options, because you're not going to switch during this moment. So and they, they do that across. So with all their actions that you can do, it replaces that top area header. Here's another example, and this is from a friend of mine, Garrett Diamond. He's working on a bug and issue tracking program. And he's really thinking about the details in those moments. So you'll notice there are radio button options. But you know, in all, of, I think there are four or five options. And in a lot of bug tracking, you'd have a drop down. Some of those options wouldn't apply based on where the bug was in the process. So he's isolated that. Based on where the bug is in the process, you don't see irrelevant options. First of all, that's a good step forward. Second, you'll notice how he's actually using the arrow keys to indicate the progression. So, that, that mental process of figuring out, okay, it's open, what are the next, pro- he's actually visually illustrated that. And you'll notice if it's a resolved issue, you have the options to move back and reopen it or move forward and close it. So, he's thinking about that conversation and what happens at that, that moment. I'm really impressed with the details he's putting into this. Here's uh, going back to the iPhone. This is the latest version of Google Maps on the iPhone. And they were running out of room for options and things you can do with the previous release. And with this update, they actually did something that's really neat. And I would not be surprised to see this show up in a web based app, you know, Flash app, Flex app, within the coming year. And that is, you push on the, the icon at the lower right, and actually you see the page literally fold away, and you see the other options underneath. Uh, the options that maybe are lesser used and don't need the primary importance, they're all kind of tucked away underneath. So again, I really like that pattern. I can see that being ported over to desktops, and thinking about that conversation. What do you need at a moment? Similarly, on the iPhone, you don't get all the delete options until you actually click you know, Edit, and then it turns on the options to delete things. So thinking about those moments, and do you need all the features, or do you just need the features that you use most often? And those that are used less often, like the 10 or 20% of the time, will hide those behind a few more clicks. And probably that's OK. A, so here's an example. Those are mobile phone examples. Here's an example from Viddler, and they have a lot of real space to work with, but they do a great job of just showing you the movie or the, the video you're watching. And if for some reason you want to do any of those things like forward or favorite, all those actions, you click on it, and while it's still playing, the movie actually shrinks, and then you see all those options around the movie. But otherwise, they're not there until you actually initiate that. And they also have a, a menu that you can click on to set thumbnail, so they have some different options there, but they're thinking about this conversational moment, sort of designing with less space. And here's a non sequitur I had to throw in. Uh, The latest version of Firefox, have you noticed that the the back button is much bigger than the forward button? How many of you use your back button in the browser? How many of you use your forward button? Yeah, so I, I like how the design's reflecting that pattern. That was great. Okay, one of my favorite sections. And that was, how do we better communicate function, content, and context? So you're seeing examples come out from Microsoft, things with Silverlight. And this is an app, a financial planning app. And it's very visual. And this is cool, and this is exciting to look at. But I think if you're working inside an enterprise environment, uh, I think you're probably seeing things like what's on the left, right? This is a, a CRM tool. And this is very common, right, inside a lot of businesses. These are the tools we have to work with. These are the GUI toolkit. Uh, if you look on the right, you know, this is, this is not a CRM tool, you know, by the proper definition. But if you look at the, con- the information in the actual fields, it's uh, pretty much the data is the same. The question I would ask is, which one would you want to work with? You know, which one is easier on the eyes? Which one gets you to do the information more quickly? So it doesn't have to be something crazy, like some visual representation of data. It could be just simple things like, let's get out of, You know, things that look like on the left, and actually just, you know, put data that's not editable and, you know, displays, form, basic stuff like that. Okay, here's some crazier ideas Uh, Disco, it's a a tool for burning DVDs and CDs on the Mac. And anyone want to guess, just by the visual cue, what's happening at this moment? (laughs) Burning the CD, burning the DVD. Uh, Here's a a tool from Microsoft called Popfly, and it's for, basically creating your own mashups, connecting RSS feeds. So this, was, this came out after Yahoo Pipes. And it's kind of a, a more visual version of that. So each of those boxes represents a site, like Flickr, or Delicious, or, or uh, Dig. And, and you literally take the boxes and you hook them together. So it's a very visual representation of what you're doing from a, in a technical perspective. Here's a more subtle thing. This is on the TUAW, the unofficial Apple Weblog site. And if you look in the comments, They've taken it a step further. Instead of uh, you know, like people rating things down, when they rate things down, they actually adjust the contrast, so it's a little bit harder to read. And this is a great way to keep your eyes focused on the comments that the community thinks are most important and help you gloss over the ones the community has thumbed down or voted down. A subtle thing, but I think this is really powerful. Again, it's using visual to communicate you know relevance in this case. Similarly, this is the uh, Get Satisfaction site on the left, and the uh, Another a tool called CampPile for giving feedback or reporting bugs on sites. And again, you can see the smiley faces or the unhappy faces, and, and uh, again, very visual tools to help you get through this much more quickly. Basic things like validation. I still see a lot of sites where there's an error and it waits till you hit submit, and it reloads the page, and you get the red text at the top of the page, even though the error is you know, down you know, seven lines down. Validation, we, we should be able to address now. I mean, here's an application signing up for NewsPond where it gives you a little checks as you tab to the next item. And then uh, as you tab off, it actually gives you a red error, the passwords don't match. Or here's a f- JavaScript that's free, live validation. And it'll actually do validation right next to the box, and it'll color code it green as you enter the information, or red if it's incorrect. Uh, here's, a, here's a site that's been out for a little while. Uh, I believe it's called Crowd Value. it's a real estate, I think, in California. And you, I think if you just look at the crowd value icon above the number, that communicates that this isn't one person's opinion, this is a crowd. These are people speaking for this number. So, again, those visual details communicating what this content is. Here's another one uh, filter your search results and just adding the arrow that points to the filter options. Subtle things like that, but they communicate function. So, lesson takeaway from there is make it visual. Um, similarly, when we're talking about communicating function, I would add. Think about 3D space. And I had a whole bunch of examples here. And I cut it down to really just one that I wanted to focus on that I think is a lot more uh, relevant, a lot more easy to drop in. And that's ZUI. Uh, I have not say ZUI interfaces. That would be redundant. So curiosity, how many of you have heard the term ZUI or ZUI? OK, if you haven't heard the term, you've definitely seen interfaces. It basically stands for Zooming User Interfaces. Pretty basic idea. Here's a screenshot from Wikipedia explaining it, that you can basically start out at one level. You can pan across information. You can zoom out to see other information. You can zoom back in for a higher level of fidelity. The Hard Rock Cafe uh, site, memorabilia site that just launched, uses Microsoft Silverlight and one of the new features they're telling called Deep Zoom, where it makes it very easy now for developers and designers to build these zooming capabilities, kind of like what Google Earth does when you zoom in zoom out. They, they use that here for the Hard Rock Cafe site. I'm going to skip this example because of time, but there's a site called Scribe, and they basically take your, uh, uh, basically the screens you're familiar with in Outlook, but you can start at that month view, you can zoom in to the day view, or week view, zoom in, you know, to actual the meeting, and they're using that zooming interface, but because of time, I'll skip the video there. I mentioned the uh, Sugar OS earlier, and I talked about the frame for the navigation. The other thing that was core to the design of the of the Sugar OS was this idea of this Zoomy interface and the idea of community. So this is actually a concept model for the operating system. And you can see the activities are the lowest level. That's actually what you dive down to. But then at various levels, you're looking at your friends, you're looking at home, which is you. You're looking at friends, and then you zoom out at the highest level, and you're looking at your neighborhood. So I believe this might be the neighborhood level at the highest level. Just understanding that concept and that, that model they that built it on helps you understand the interface a little bit more. And for those of you who are Mac users, this is a version someone did to kind of translate so you can understand. So there's the applications across the bottom, your network across the right, the zooming interface tools across the top, and then your open documents across the left. All right, let's see how I'm doing on time. All right, so this last little section uh, where I didn't have a problem in mind, but this was really cool stuff that I couldn't close the presentation without sharing. So you supply the problem tuck this away, and maybe three months from now, three weeks from now, a year from now, you'll have a problem. You'll think, ah, that would be a great way to solve this. This is a great way to execute it. I have several videos here. So the first is an uh, application on the Mac called Jing. It's from TechSmith, and it's what I've been using for, for uh, screen capture. So you'll notice the little sun, sun uh, navigation menu in the upper right-hand corner. So here I would select the, the browser, start recording. You'll see me go back up, and it's, it's fun to play with. Uh, just, it's tucked away there, you know, is there when I need it, but it's, it's not getting in the way other, otherwise. Uh, and you can see it's kind of fun to play with and hover. So anyway, that's a, that's a neat little thing I wanted to share. Um, the next one is actually an image viewing tool, image browsing tool called PicLens. And uh, it, it's actually tapping into th- the 3D graphics on your machine, whether you're Mac or PC, to get some really incredible graphics. So you can see here, I'm zooming in and out. So that's neat. The part that I wanted to really zero in is the part that you can't see because of the lighting. But on the bottom, they have a scroll bar. And the scroll bar is actually a mashup of a scroll bar with a progress indicator. Because you see all these blocks that actually indicate the images as they're loading. So if you reach the edge on the scroll bar and you don't see more blocks, you have to wait until some more fade in and you keep scrolling. So this idea of mashing up existing GUI elements was really fascinating to me. And I've seen this a lot. Sliders actually have bar graphs attached to them. Or or, uh, submit buttons actually turn into progress bars when you hit submit. So I wanted to point that out. Here's an application called CookThink. And I really like how they implemented or integrated the tag cloud on this. So I type in eggplant as the primary ingredient. And I click on ingredient. And I actually get the tag cloud of other ingredients. And you know the size indicates how many recipes they have with those ingredients. So here I'll pick eggplant plus mushroom. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, cook think it. And now it'll actually take me to a recipe that has those ingredients. So there you go. This is a site that. Uh, I'm not a member of, but I think there's some interesting things to learn. This is called I'm in Like With You. And here, here on this site, you're actually watching videos that they've uploaded, like they upload retro videos or other things, and pretty much it's a, it's a, a party making, making fun of it a lot of times. What you're seeing here are people making comments, but instead of comments showing up in a long blog roll, you're actually or uh, comments list, you're actually seeing the comments on specific pieces of the video as it moves along. And you can actually pause at one point and say, oh, I want to make a comment on that. That, <laughs> that moment, you got it. So. And I actually selected this one over some of the others. Because some of the others, uh, I know it's, it's a teen community. And some of the stuff they say and comment on when it's Rick Astley video was, was not appropriate. Uh, here's another site, uh, by Schematic. And I thought what they did was very interesting. Kind of similar to the Zui interface idea. There's not the zooming in and out, but there's the panning across. So you can actually see how we're going across different sections of their site. I think you'll see here. I'll pull back a little. to Actually see all the pages. But I've seen things like this done in the past. I don't know. The execution of it here was really interesting. I think they pulled it off. And uh, one of the principals or creative directors or guys behind this actually was involved with designing some of the Minority Report stuff for the Minority Report movie. So definitely some innovative thinking there in their projects and their own site. This is uh, schematic. Is the name of the design agency. And then the last one uh, that I really want to close on is this, uh, it's called Power Cursor, and I think it was a student project. This thing is really fascinating to me. Um, you'll have to go out and experience it, but what, what he's done, or what the person's done, is written a script that basically you know, makes certain areas of the page grittier or smoother or adds dimples to the page, if you will. So in this case, on your you know, close and minimize buttons, uh, He'll have two samples, one, as we have it today, where the cursor moves freely you know, with no, no interruption. And then he'll show the one with the script. And you'll actually notice, as you scroll nearer, it's almost like you're falling into a little dimple. You'll, or if you get near the edge, you'll kind of gravitate toward the center of that button. Really subtle, really interesting. And he does this on various things. He actually has a, a one page that's a, a guy like, trying to swat a fly. And you're trying to do it. And it actually, but it's recognizing the scroller behaviors and scroll, scrolling interactions. And these are the most, uh, yeah, sorry, I said scroll. Um, These are the most interesting uh, or applicable uh, usage of it. There are some other fun things. Uh, You could get really devious with this and make the page really slick, but then slow down and and gravitate towards banner ads or something horrible like that. Uh, (laughs) Could be abused. But the idea that, you know, thinking about we're working with a surface here, that, you know, some areas are smoother or grittier than others. That's really fascinating. So the theme of the conference here is experiencing information. Uh, My challenge is to go against default thinking, to resist default thinking, and to dream it, and then go build it. And thank you very much.